So welcome to the Sport and History podcast brought to you by the British Society of Sport History in association with the Institute of Historical Research. The seminar series for 2018-19 is over now, um, but you can listen to the seminars on our previous podcasts, but the podcast will continue, but in a different format. In the run-up to the BSSH conference, I'll be interviewing a number of researchers in the history of sports who have recently given papers at our seminar, and we'll be chatting about uh, their careers as historians, uh, the latest research that they've been carrying out, and more generally about their interest in sport history. Where does the passion that they have for the subject come from? What role does sport and history play in their everyday lives? Now, the first guest in this series of uh, informal interviews or discussions with sport historians is Dr. Raf Nicholson. Hi, Raf. Hello. And again. <laughs> <laughs> yep, if you've listened to the podcast before, you'll know that we run the Sport and Leisure History Seminar together at the IHR. Uh, Raf is currently working at Bournemouth University, I think that's right. Yeah, that's right, yeah. As a postdoctoral researcher in sport, leisure, and tourism. Uh, we might talk about that later on. You might also know Raf through her work as a journalist for, amongst others, uh, The Guardian. I think you were doing a podcast for The Guardian this morning, weren't you? Yeah, I did, yeah. yeah. Uh, Crick Info, uh, Wisdom, uh, the Bible of Cricket, and the BBC. And Raf also has her own website and Twitter accounts, Cricket Her. And she's definitely one of the most astute commentators on women's cricket working in the UK at this moment in time. That's very kind, yeah. Thank you. What an introduction. <laughs> yeah, that's all right. <laughs> I have a lot of respect for your work. Um, so the last time I saw you, Raf, you were just off to cover this year's Women's Ashes. How's that going? Oh, no, I knew this was going to come up. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess it's possible we might have some, some listeners in Australia. Yeah. So it, it's going really well yeah. if you're listening from Australia. Yeah. If you're listening from England, it's going really badly. Yeah. Um, and it's not been a huge amount of fun to report on, especially yesterday, the third ODI at Canterbury, um, which England lost by almost 200 runs so it was quite one-sided to be honest yeah but there was one highlight on the uh, radio coverage um, on test match special because uh, between the innings during the innings break there was a documentary about the women's ashes of 1976 and they were interviewing you because uh, it's something you've written about um, can you tell us what was significant in particular about that series in 76? Yeah, sure. Um, well, it's been um, kind of put together by Charlie Taylor from BBC Somerset. Um, so he should get a lot of the credit as well. Um, but I've been on a couple of the episodes and it's looking back at the whole history of the women's ashes. Um, this particular episode was 1976. Um, and I think a lot of the focus was on um, the first ever women's match at Lords, yeah. um, which probably doesn't officially count as ashes um, because it was an ODI um, and this was at a time when um, the women's ashes hadn't moved to being multi-format as it is at the moment. Um, so I just wanted to get that out of the way for any any tedious listeners who are, would otherwise um, point that out yeah, for us. Fact checkers. Yeah, fact-checkers. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this particular um, day in 1976, the 4th of August, um, it was England women v Australia women um, playing in an ODI at Lords, um, the first time women had ever played at that particular kind of um, home of cricket. Mm. Um, and they'd been... They've been after trying to get a match there um, for a number of years, uh, well, decades actually. Um, and finally, um, they managed to persuade the MTC in 1976 to give it to them. Was that an easy thing for them to do? Or 
did they face some challenges? Well, I think um, the MTC were generally very resistant to the idea of um, holding a women's international at Lords. Um, whenever the Women's Cricket Association asked, um, which they did for the first time in 1929, um, the, the MTC turned around and said, no, too, we're too full, we're too busy. Uh, meanwhile, all these completely insignificant uh, you know, public school matches, uh, they're quite happy to stage those, but women's cricket they didn't have any time for. And I think the thing that ended up kind of swinging it for the women in the end was the success of the first ever Cricket World Cup in yeah. 1973, um, which they tried to get the, the final of that held at Lords, and the MTC said no, turned them down flat. So they took it to Edgbaston instead. It was a very successful tournament, uh, and the MTC were quite embarrassed. So three years later, they did eventually let them use Lords. Yeah, and I've read your dissertation, your PhD uh, thesis, I should say, and um, that thesis particularly covers the way in which women's cricket post-war um, struggled to be taken seriously by the men's game and by the cricket authorities. But how do you, I mean, how do you see that experience that women had? Um, of struggle against sort of male authority, how does that fit into wider social change in post-war Britain or the wider experience mm. of, of women in Britain? Well, it's an interesting one because if you ask um, female cricketers, and I've done quite a lot of um, oral history interviews, which I think we're going to talk about as well, mm. um, if you ask them how they kind of perceive their activities, they will sort of vehemently deny that there's any political aspect to what yeah. they do. And they will say, oh, no, no, I was just doing it because... Um, you know, I, I enjoyed playing cricket and it was fun and if you ever mention the F word, which in this context is feminist, yeah. um, they'll get quite cross, um, potentially, or Is that maybe all not, of them? Or? Uh, almost all of them, right. yeah. Um, maybe cross isn't the right word, but they will very vehemently deny um, being feminists. Yeah. Um, whereas my argument um, in the thesis and in my forthcoming book um, is actually that... Um, for female cricketers, um, playing cricket is inherently political because it's a statement about um, women's role in society and, and what's appropriate for women in society. Yeah. Uh, and it's saying, well, um, you know, uh, societal kind of discourses about uh, what's appropriate for women dictate that they shouldn't be kind of participating in, in male-dominated sports like cricket. Um, and I think cricket's particularly significant because it was the national sport for such a long time and really associated with kind of concepts of of British and English manliness. Um, so kind of discourses are suggesting that women shouldn't be playing it, and yet they are, and they're, they're yeah. very aware of those discourses, and they're, and they're playing cricket anyway, um, just because they want to. And that's actually um, a very political thing, I would suggest. And how about um, women playing cricket today? Are they more self-consciously... Um happy to or are they happy to to see their you know um they're playing cricket as a feminist act or do they see it in the same terms yeah that's it's interesting isn't it how, um, yeah, how and, yeah well i think and they often talk about um so particularly um when the 2017 women's world cup was played in england um and they played the final at lords and there was a lot of kind of nods to the history of the women's game then and particularly to rachel hayhoe flint who was kind of this very influential figure who sadly passed away just a few months before um, that World Cup final at Lords. And there were lots of kind of people saying, oh, uh, or the players on the day that that was played, saying, oh, um, you know, if only she'd been here, it would have been so lovely. And we're really kind of partly playing for her. And, 
Um, but if you if you ask them about it, they'll say, oh well, that's all all that struggles kind of in the past. That's behind us, and yeah. now um, we're professional um, at the elite level, um, and um, you know, so uh, we're being paid to play, um, and that's our career, and. Um, and I think, um, and as well, that there's a lot more media coverage and a lot more um, kind of public respect for what they're doing, and that therefore perhaps they don't see it um, in the same way as a kind of political struggle. Um, so, whereas I still think, I think that's quite a dangerous perspective in some ways because I think that I Maybe see complacent. my role. Well, potentially, yeah. Um, and you, you see that when things like yesterday's match at Canterbury happen. Um, and uh, they have a particularly bad day with the bat, for example, which happens so often in the men's game. Let's be honest. I mean, you know, when is it an England men's game without a batting collapse? I'm of an age to remember when it happened nearly every every Test match. <laughs> there you go. Um, and uh, well, I mean, I was on the Guardian podcast this morning, and they they've for some reason they've got a kind of shrine to Michael Atherton. Yeah. Um, and so Michael Atherton's staring at me for the whole podcast. And I mean, you know. Uh, so for the whole of the 1990s, you could argue yeah. that men should have been banned from playing cricket. Well, we had um, only two batsmen, Gooch, Atherton, and then nine others uh, <laughs> <laughs> when I was growing up. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, but so I guess the point I was trying to make was yeah. that um, whenever the England women's team lose, people say, oh, it's because they're women and women shouldn't be playing cricket. They're rubbish. Um, and you get those people coming out um, on social media and... Um, writing comments like that below the line on my Guardian match reports uh, and that's really frustrating and, and I do think we need to be careful about being complacent because we've still got an enormously long way to go before we can say oh there's kind of real equality between men's and women's cricket yeah um, and uh, we were both contributors to a, a recent edited collection on South African cricket history um, sort of jumping from feminism as a political uh, kind of um, means of resistance or um and in in that south african cricket volume uh your article addressed the resonances between the infamous dolavira affair and the women's cricketers at that time and for those who aren't aware of the details of the dolavira affair um, wikipedia is available but i'll give you a quick <laughs> a quick uh, pressy off the top of my head um, this was 1968 and basil dolavira was a uh, black or technically in those days coloured South African um, who qualified to play for England um, and did play for England in 68 um, but despite having a great summer with the bat um, he wasn't selected to tour South Africa in the winter tour and there was a public outcry um, and Dolavira was eventually selected after the withdrawal of the, uh, Tom Cartwright I think from memory um, and of course, when South Africa learned that England were going to have a non-white player in their team, they refused to go ahead with the tour. And this led to the isolation of South Africa from international cricket, or South African men, and I'm, I'm assuming women as well, from international cricket until the breakdown of the apartheid system and the introduction of democracy to South Africa in the 1990s. So that's the context from the men's game, and it's a very well-known story. But your chapter was really interesting because it was looking at the implications for women's cricket of that um, of that event of the Dolavira affair. Can you can you give us an idea of what there was? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think it actually affected the women's game kind of more immediately um, and more directly than it did the men's game, um, which was still then kind of being run partly by the MCC. Um, so what happened was um, the 
England women's team um, had booked to go and, and tour Australia and New Zealand um, in the winter of 1968-9. Um, and they decided that a good thing to do while they were en route would be to stop over in South Africa for 10 days, uh, sort of acclimatise, play a little bit of cricket en route and um, kind of try and develop the relationship that they'd been building up with the South African Women's Association. Yeah. Um, so in 1967 they went ahead and they, um, they booked these flights that included the stopover. Um, and then the Dolavira affair happened and suddenly um, the government kicked back. So the, the, other, the other important thing to note is that um, by this stage the government were actually, um, for the first time, they were giving money um, to the Women's Cricket Association, right. so grant aid, um, to help them with their travel expenses as, a, as an international touring side. Yeah. Um, and the grant that they'd given them or that they were going to give them was £2,000, which was a lot of money at that time. Um, and. Um, the government, after the Dolivera affair, after the Dolivera affair happened, um, the British government realised somehow um, it's not quite clear exactly the, what what happened, other than that ten days after the Dolivera um, kind of controversy came about, um, the WCA then issued this um, statement to the press saying we'll no longer be we'll no longer be stopping over in South Africa. Right. Um, so they were unable to do that, um, and. Um, the, it was kind of publicly represented as um, they'd done it kind of out of the goodness of their hearts um, or they just kind of reached the decision that they, that they weren't going to go to South Africa and actually what was going on behind the scenes was that the government were putting huge pressure on them yeah. basically saying, um, you know, if you go then we're not going to fund you um, and they couldn't go without that money because they were totally reliant on it. Um, so essentially I think um, one of the people I interviewed said that it was a gun to their head basically. Yeah. Um, and so actually the Dolivera affair that's going on in men's cricket ends up having this, um, this immediate impact on the women's game. And I think the overall point that I was, that I was trying to make with that piece was really that um, when historians are writing about the history of cricket and kind of international affairs and diplomacy, they really need to take the women's game into account. Yeah. Because it's a big part of the story and, and often it doesn't quite map out in the same way as the men's game does. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you mentioned um, the interviews that you did, and I, I believe a lot of the research that you did was based on interviews with, with former and current England players. Yep, yeah, that's right, yeah. So how was it, how easy was it to find people who were willing to talk about their experiences? Can you tell us something about that? Yeah, um, I mean, the most difficult interviews to get were with people who are still playing. Yeah. Um, so at the time I did my PhD, um, Charlotte Edwards was the England captain, and I did manage to get an interview with her. Um, but I think that from her perspective, um, after an hour, she sort of was uh, sort of sat back and was like, I think we're going to have to wrap up. Um, because oral history and journalism interviews are quite different. Yeah. And I think from her perspective, um, she hadn't expected me to keep her so long. Um, but normally, um, with the former England players, they were really keen to talk about their experiences. Um, often they'd not really got very much public recognition for their efforts. And I, I think to some extent, most of them are still very, very um, unknown. Yeah. Um, and so they were quite happy to kind of um, talk about their memories. And um, yeah, so it was, it was generally fairly straightforward to get people to speak, actually. Yeah, you mentioned the difference between interviewing people as a journalist and interviewing people as part of an oral history project. Yeah. Um, how did you? How did you? Because I'm thinking that early career researchers or postgrads might be listening to this podcast. I mean, how did you approach oral history as a source? Um, what methodology did you use? Uh, 
what were the pitfalls that you had to look out for when you were when you were conducting these interviews? I mean, I think I got quite lucky in a way because there, I, I initially thought, oh, I'm going to have to rely very heavily on oral histories, but there ended up being quite a lot of archival material yeah. as well um, that I found in the course of the PhD. Um, so for me, the I had a lot of um, archival material that was providing me with a kind of framework in terms of um, this happened on this date according to these minutes. Yeah, so um, you're, you're cross, cross-referencing always. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, but then, so that meant that the oral histories could be more of an exploration of things like... Um, kind of the meaning of cricket to mm-hmm. female players um, and, and kind of why why it was that they decided that that was the sport that they loved and um, and, and this this kind of thorny question of feminism so are you a feminist mm. and um, what what do you think that I mean when I ask you that question um, and so kind of um, unpicking some of those things um, gave gave me time and the opportunity to be able to do that really yeah I mean oral history is always a really good way of Finding about finding out about the experiences of people who often don't, don't leave a re- an archival record. Yeah, do they? Um, yeah. and especially I think uh, women's historians um, have used it very heavily um, as a way of kind of because women were so often kind of absent absent from the official archive, and it's about kind of giving voice to the voiceless. Yeah, um, and that's certainly um, one of the ways that I saw it. Um, I think actually women's historians have, have also missed a trick though to some extent because um, because women's leisure lives and sporting lives have often been missing from those accounts of yeah. their kind of broader. Um, so, so, you know, women's historians from the 1970s kind of putting um, women into history, but I feel like we're, you know, maybe 30, 40 years behind in trying to reinsert women into sports history. Yeah, well, I think that's something we've been quite keen on doing as part of the seminar, isn't it? And we've had quite a few papers uh, by women historians and men um, looking at women's history, looking at women's sports history. So how do you see your work fitting in? with the wider trajectory of sports history. Is this a, a growing movement, do you think? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'm really excited where, by where sports history is going. Um, so people like recently, we've had Lisa Taylor and Lydia Furs, haven't we? Yeah. Um, who are kind of young um, historians um, looking at these huge kind of swathes of neglected areas of, of sports history. So things like women's rowing or um, women's rugby that just haven't really been studied at all. Uh, and I think that um, to some extent, I mean, if you look at uh, undergraduate reading lists, then the, the sports history text that they've, that they've still got on there is, is Richard Holt's Sport on the British from 1989. Yeah. And it's, um, I mean, it's so out of date. Uh, I believe, I mean, you know, not to cast aspersions because he was doing something at that time that was quite yeah, radical. That, that was 30 years ago. Right. So. But, but um, there's, there's a bit of a problem in that the research that um, people like myself and Lydia and Lisa are doing isn't perhaps necessarily reaching um, those reading lists yet. Yeah. But it's definitely happening. And we need to, um, I guess, work as sports historians to try and get our research a little bit more into the mainstream. And, yeah. Um, I mean, from my own experience of teaching, it's definitely reaching the the reading lists in specialist centres like De Montfort, where I worked, or Manchester Met, um, which I know through people who work there. But my concern, having worked at other universities, is that it's a slower thing getting sports history onto onto reading lists in more general social histories. And I think that's that's really what we're concerned to do with the seminar, is to encourage that research and encourage the people becoming more aware of that research and, and how, how it fits into other other 
diff- other, other sort of disciplines. Yeah, things. definitely. Yeah, I mean, fortunately, uh, the next podcast I'll be talking to Jean Williams, who was really one of the pioneers of, uh, of women's history and women's women's sports history yeah definitely she? Yeah. yeah and she was your examiner for your bio she was one of my examiners yeah, yeah. <laughs> she was great because it was just the right balance between um somebody kind of being not um nasty um but being stringent and you yeah. want somebody that's going to take your work seriously and ask ask you kind of searching questions um are we going to talk about the fact jeff that you gave me a mock <laughs> viva the week before that was actually worse than the real viva um well obviously we are now <laughs> i didn't know we were going to do that <laughs> but, uh, so if anyone out there listening wants somebody to do a mock viva that's going to be terrifying and make the real thing seem fine then jeff's available i, I, I do sound terrifying don't i <laughs> i mean you can tell from my interviewing technique that i'm a ferocious <laughs> ferocious um, puller apart of, uh, of people <laughs> I, but did it pay off? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. No, I would recommend you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I understand that the thesis uh, underpins the book that, that, that you mentioned earlier on, mm-hmm. but um, how does the book differ from the thesis? Is it just the thesis between hard covers, or, <laughs> <laughs> or, um, or is there a reason why people should get the book rather than... <laughs> rather than download the thesis? Yeah. Um, <laughs> The, so the, my thesis was just post-war, right. um, so everything since 1945. Um, the book goes back quite a lot further in time and looks at the entire period um, of uh, kind of recorded women's cricket. So the first recorded match um, in England was 1745. Um, so, it, yeah, it's going back a few more centuries. Um, and um, there had been a little bit of work done on that on that earlier period, which is why I initially was chosen to, had chosen to focus on post-1945 um, so I've kind of incorporated that so um, Judy Threlfall Sykes um, yeah. who finished uh, her PhD at De Montford a couple of years ago um, was looking at interwar um, women's cricket particularly and, and Adam Mackey at, um, at Royal Holloway um, did a kind of year's master's uh, dissertation on, mm. on that period as well um, so there has been some really interesting um, kind of postgraduate work done yeah. on that um, so I've, I've kind of I've, I've used that quite heavily and also done a little bit more archival research of my own as well yeah okay. and um, you're an early career researcher now so you've moved on from PhD um, once the book's off <laughs> off your uh, you know off your well you've completed it now haven't yes, you yes yeah it's, I'm waiting it's heading um, for publication yeah waiting yeah. for the proofs at the moment which um, is really exciting so, so what are you doing at Bournemouth? What's your role there? Are you using your skills as a sport historian or is it more as an oral historian? Um, oh, is, that's, that's an interesting question. I'm, I'm working specifically in impact, um, right. which is this new thing in higher education, or relatively new in higher education, um, where universities are partly assessed um, on the quality of um, the impact of their research. Um, and by that, I mean kind of the, the ways in which our research has changed um, the situation for people kind of outside of academia. I think a lot of people listening to this will, <laughs> will be worried about impact, won't they? Well, yeah, I'm just, I'm just offering a very basic explanation just yeah. in case anyone is yeah, scratching their heads. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is, it's definitely on the agenda. Uh, yeah. And I think kind of my job is partly been brought about by the, the latest um, kind of... Uh, well, the ref cycle, as we refer to yeah. it, um, and uh, trying to... Can you explain ref for people who aren't within the academic community? That maybe? is a question, isn't yeah. it? Uh, well, it's the Research Excellence Framework, um, and it 
uh, I think it's on a seven year cycle at the moment um, and essentially um, so the next one will be um, 2021 um, and the last one was 2014 Uh, and it's how um, the government allocates funding to the universities is partly done on the quality of the research and the quality of the research is measured by your output so your publications uh, but also on the impact of your research so as I say um, kind of the ways in which um, your research is is reaching people who aren't in academia. So you have a really quite important role at Bournemouth if you're you know if you're helping people to to achieve that impact and to Um, Yeah, I think because of the stage that I've come into it, I'm more um, helping them to collect evidence for impact that's already happened and also writing um, these, because the way in which you um, submit your impact for um, assessment is you write an impact case study. Um, which is kind of four pages. Um, so you end up having to distill quite a lot of information into these four pages. Um, and it's quite a, I think it is quite a skill to, because you can have a really good impact, but if you don't express it in the right way, then you're not going to get the credit for it. Yeah. Um, so I've been having lots of training and learning how to do that and now kind of putting it into practice, basically. Yeah. But it's really fun because I think that the most interesting bits of our research are the bits that people who aren't in academia actually care about. Yeah. Uh, and that's, yeah, to some extent, that's what I think is driving you to do this podcast, isn't it? Definitely, yeah. I want people, because I, I think that the work that, that people do who come through our seminar and also through our society as well, of course it's academic and it's interesting to the academy, but I think the public are interested in it as well. And, and my, my view is, what's the point in writing something if nobody reads it? It, it doesn't matter how good it is. If, um, if it doesn't get out there into the, into the public, then then a lot of hard work uh, and good work uh, goes wasted really doesn't it yeah, yeah. I think you're right yeah. yeah but as someone who has one foot in academia and one foot in freelance work I mean how do you manage to balance the two I think it's something that a lot of early career researchers have to struggle with um, how how do you manage to maintain that balance is it easy um, are it's there not any tips easy. You I mean, I have to do it as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I think the the thing that we're all lacking is time, isn't it? Yeah. And that's the big challenge. Um, and um, Bournemouth have been really good, have been really supportive. And I think partly because they see um, the the freelance journalism that I'm doing as, as quite a big kind of um, element to the impact work that yeah. I'm involved in. And I think that's one of the reasons why I got the job in the first place, was that I could show, well, I'm having quite a good impact myself already. Um so they've, they've been really helpful. Um, so I guess tip number one is, I guess, try and work for a good university. Um, although that can be quite difficult to, to assess yeah. before you actually arrive in position. Um, it's, yeah, I, I mean, the problem with journalism is obviously it never stops. Um, and so you end up with people asking you to write stuff um, when you haven't really got loads of time. Um, so, so one example would be last October, my boss, really, my boss at Bournemouth really wanted me to go to this meeting in Edinburgh Castle um, as part of this uh, research project that he'd been involved in. Um, So I said, yeah, that's fine, I'll fly up to Edinburgh uh, in the afternoon and then I'll go to this meeting, um, this event. Uh, And then on the same day, Wisdom Cricket Monthly magazine said to me, oh, can you um, you do an interview with Catherine Brunt and write it up for us? So this this all culminated in me running up the Royal (laughs) Mile with Catherine Brunt on the phone. Um, and I'm going, so, so, can you tell me about that traumatic period in your career when you had a back injury and like panting and really out of breath? And there's like police sirens in the background and loads of background noise. So I couldn't hear what she was saying. 
um, I could just about tell when she started when she stopped talking so then I'd launch into the next question without any idea of what she just said uh, and then at the end I sort of went oh thanks very much Catherine I'm at, the, I'm at Edinburgh Castle now so I'm going to have to go bye and then um, I managed to get both things done it was fine um, I still think that Catherine Munt thinks I'm slightly um, I'm slightly odd yeah. uh, as a result of that um, so yeah wasn't the trauma of that interview that led to her withdrawing from yesterday's game <laughs> was it? oh god I hope not because <laughs> you might argue that she was quite a significant loss to the team oh she? huge yeah, yeah. definitely um, you're, well talking about being busy you're also the chair vice chair sorry of the um, British Society of Sport History so how did you how did you get into that position how, when, when did you start to get involved in society what was your path into that uh, it was quite a few years ago now um, I was asked if I'd consider being the membership secretary initially um, so that was the first role that I did um, on the executive committee which is now the board um, and yeah so I did I did that um, for a few years and then um, became vice chair um, I think for me I really like the. I'm really. I'm, I'm, I really enjoy the work that I do for BSSH because um, I kind of see it as giving something back to a community that I think has given me a lot. Um, I think that I, I really enjoy going to the BSSH conference. It's my yeah. favourite conference. It's it's so friendly. I mean, I, I think most people that have been would, would probably say the same. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm, yeah, I like going to the conference as well. Um, so that's that's nice. It's a really nice community of um, of sports historians and. Um, and then you know I think sport and history is a great journal um, and um, that's given me opportunities as well um, I won the, the BSSH um, postgraduate prize one year um, and that kind of I think is was something really great that's that's on my CV now yeah. um, and so I think that BSSH as a community of sports historians is, is really important um, and so I've kind of enjoyed being being more involved and as I say sort of trying to give something back yeah and um We'll be at the, we'll be at the uh, conference, won't we? And uh, tying it into the seminar, we'll be trawling for talent at the conference, I think. Yeah, it's we will be. Yeah. yeah, we're looking for speakers for the next academic year. Um, before we leave, I uh, just want to mention something, uh, the BBC programme that you did, uh, which kind of ties together all of, all of the strands of what you do. Uh, when you were interviewed on Great Lives about oh, yeah. Rachel, Rachel Hayhoe Flint, who you mentioned earlier on. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that like? I mean, that's probably the highest profile thing that you've yeah, done. Yeah, it probably it? is the highest yeah. profile thing I've done. Um, it was great. So uh, Matthew Paris is, is interesting because um, every week he's kind of doing a, a totally different subject. Um, but yeah, he still manages to kind of have this amazing grasp of the material somehow. Um, so that was that was quite an experience. Um, the um, Yeah. What else about it? I think um, I had to convince them I was an expert yeah. initially because the producer rang me uh, and she said, um, "Oh, what do you know? What could? Well, we're, we're doing some research for this program. What can you tell us?" Um, and so I, I reeled off a load of information, and at the end of it, she kind of said, "Oh, maybe you could be our expert witness." <laughs> um, so that was, yeah, no, it was, it was, it was interesting. It was fun, um, and I think. Um, the nicest thing that happened as a result of that actually was that uh, Rachel's son Ben um, sent me a message on Twitter afterwards saying um, you were brilliant and I couldn't have done her more proud if I'd done it myself or, yeah. or something like that yeah. um, 
and I just thought that's that's really nice. I did I did a good job because there was a bit of controversy that was discussed. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. it's a great listen. I think it's still available. Yeah, it's still on the on the BBC website. Yeah. Um, so I was just slightly conscious that I might be um, potentially upsetting people, but he obviously felt like you know that I'd done her justice. So I was happy with that. That's a very positive note to end on. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, thanks a lot to Raf. As mentioned, the Society's conference is coming soon in the first week of September. And it's not too late to register as a delegate. No, absolutely not. Um, and if you're attending, we'll see you there. Um, the next podcast, as I mentioned, will be with Professor Jean Williams of Wolverhampton University. But until then, it's goodbye from both of us. Goodbye. Goodbye.